Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Perspective and Parallax. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Jonas Dupuy. Jonas runs Northern California Bonsai Nursery, where he teaches and writes about bonsai. He's the author of The Little Book of Bonsai, and the Bonsai Tonight blog, a twice-weekly publication featuring how-to articles and photographs of bonsai around the world. His trees have been selected for display in local and regional exhibits, including the U.S. Jonas and I explore his path to becoming a bonsai practitioner, teacher, and author. We discuss the parallels between bonsai and design, including Jonas's take on how better questions lead to better design, and that the most powerful words in the English language are, I don't know. Jonas talks about how his graduate work in teaching composition can be applied to the world of bonsai. I'd like to thank Jonas for joining me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Jonas, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Jonas Dupuy, and I work on bonsai for a living, which means I'm a bonsai teacher, a writer. I run a small nursery in my garden, and I have an online web shop. Great, thanks. And uh, do you mind uh, telling folks a little bit both about your you have a you have a very popular blog and and also a new book? Do you mind talking about those a little bit? Definitely. I write the Bonsai Tonight blog, which is a every week I write two articles every Tuesday and Friday, and they are typically how-to articles that demonstrate a technique, or maybe it's a report from a bonsai exhibit somewhere in the world. I try to go to a lot of shows across the U.S. and in uh, Japan, sometimes Europe. Excellent. Thank you. How did, how did you get interested in bonsai? Well, what's funny is the family business is a retail nursery. So I always, I grew up with an appreciation for plants and I like taking care of trees and then started learning about pruning and different basic maintenance for full-size trees. And I happened to meet a guy who coincidentally became one of the more famous bonsai teachers in the country. And so the first time I ever saw him work on a tree, I saw a tree one day that looked like a normal potted plant. And a week later it came back. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know that I like this, but there's something interesting about it. And to this day, 26 years later, I remember precisely what it felt like to see that tree for the first time. Oh, that's great. Uh, it's it's funny. I was actually talking to a musician a while ago, and uh, he talked about his first encounter with a Devo record, uh, and it first made him feel physically ill, but then he had to go back to it because he wasn't sure about it. And to this day, it re- it remains like his favorite record, but it was a, said it was a challenging start. So it's interesting when, when people remember those first, first moments. It is interesting. I remember the first time I went to the ballet, I remember thinking, I don't like this ballet, but I love ballet. And I subscribed yeah. the very next season. <laughs> right on, right on. Uh, so 26 years ago, you, you, you got your start. And, um, you know, one, one of the things that uh, I appreciate about your work, uh, and this was introduced to me by, by a friend of mine who, who loves uh, bonsai, but uh, one of the things that we appreciate about what you do with your blog is, uh, for lack of better terms, kind of your experiment. Uh, and if you don't mind kind of walking me through that process, uh, because it seems like you, you do, and I'm making some assumptions here, so feel free to correct me. Uh, but it, it seems like because you have many more uh, trees than most, that you're also able to do comparisons in, in your experiments. Uh, I don't know if that is, is right or not, but if you don't want, mind walking me through kind of your your approach to conducting experiments? Well, that's kind of a fun topic in bonsai because the way bonsai is typically taught is you do what your teacher tells you to do. And that's never worked really well for me. And so 
I have found that bonsai is such a great opportunity to follow your curiosity in any different direction, whether it's for a type of fertilizer, a watering pattern, or just the soil you use, let alone a clipping technique. And so one good example would be when I first got started, I planted a bunch of trees from seed. And what I found is that when it's time to repot, you have 50 opportunities to repot. When it's time to make a cut, you've got 50 trees to practice cutting. And I learned this lesson after the fact. This was not a conscious process. When I've got to work on 50 trees that are all roughly the same, even if I try to do them the same, I get bored after the first 10 or 12. And I think, oh, let's do this one differently. Oh, let's do this one this other way. And over the years, I realized that what I was doing is teaching myself how trees respond to all of these different approaches. And so now, knowing that up front, when I start a batch of 100 trees, I might put 10 in one soil, 10 in another, on and on and on. I might put some in one part of the yard or another part of the garden to see which uh, sunlight requirements are best. And I've just found that almost everything I do can be considered part of an experiment along the way. That, that's great. And do you, uh, I'm, I'm assuming too, just based on, on your thoroughness that you're, you're, you're maintaining kind of meticulous notes about what, what you were doing, or do you just kind of off to the side, keep just a few reminders of what you were manipulating? I have to smile whenever I hear that because in general in life, I take more notes than I should. But for bonsai from the very beginning, I pretty much never take notes of anything. Okay. And what I do is I take a lot of photos. And so yeah. I started the blog uh, 11 years ago, I guess now. And whenever I'm working on a tree or doing something I'm interested in, I'll just take a picture of it. And so while I may not have notes, I have written 1,100 posts. And so I right. definitely captured all of that. And I have, I think, forty or 50,000 photos of my trees that I've taken over the years. Thank you. So we talked about your, your first encounter, but if you don't mind talking a little bit about maybe uh, mentorship or uh, instruction that you received early on uh, in, in your craft. Yeah. And here's where I think, whenever I hear that question, I think I am incredibly lucky because I literally bumped into a guy that single-handedly made a really big difference on how bonsai is practiced in the whole country. He lived, we had the same cross street. He lived about five blocks away. And okay. so... Uh, his name was Boone Manikativi Part, or Bonsai Boone, as he's known professionally. Okay. And he and I became great friends, and he was a wonderful teacher. The timing was perfect in that right after we met, uh, a workshop had been started in his garden that happened to be taught by the first American who had completed an apprenticeship in Japan. And so whereas so many other people had been getting their instruction from either out-of-date books or from teachers who just are pretty much all self-taught, I was getting instruction fresh from the first person to ever come back from Japan, and that was Kathy Shaner is her name. Okay. One of very few women professionals, and one of, even to this day, a handful of people who completed a full apprenticeship in Japan. Oh, that's, that's great. And I'm kind of reminded of the phrase that uh, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So it sound, sounds like there was a little bit of serendipity for you with, with these connections. Yeah, I couldn't have asked for much more. And so it was also the time when the correspondence with Japan was really increasing. As the bonsai community became more and more interested in Northern California, we started bringing artists over from Japan. And I didn't learn this until maybe 15, 20 years later, but the people we happened to be bringing were the best of the best of the best in Japan. And so we were getting uh, exposed to and making relationships with really good quality work from Japan. And so I think it was in 1999, I made my first trip to Japan, visited a lot of the gardens. And uh, more recently, I've been visiting um, at least about once a year to go shopping, to see the shows, and to visit and catch up with friends and colleagues over there. That's, that's great. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, maybe trends or the, the broader category I'm interested in is just the aesthetics of bonsai? And um, are, there, are there waves or patterns of what makes good bonsai and, and maybe even uh, divisions and schools of thought about if one is being true to the craft or not in the way they approach their work? 
Uh, you probably don't know how timely, maybe you do, how timely <laughs> and appropriate that question is because it comes up a lot. And some people love to argue about whether people are doing bonsai the right way or the wrong way. Yeah. Now, unlike penjing, which is the Chinese equivalent of bonsai and actually the source from which bonsai originally sprang a very long time ago, they have very concrete schools of thought and very discreet approaches to how they practice their craft. Bonsai is a lot fuzzier. And so you tend to pick up a lot from your teacher and then from your own practice. In terms of trends, I would say there are trends for certain stylistic details, just like the way there may be a hem length back in the day they would say would yeah. change in fashion or maybe a certain material. In bonsai, you might say the level of detail on a tree. Are we doing more detail work or less detail work? There might be a fashion for what species. Maybe this kind of tree is more popular this year and another kind of tree is more popular another year. And I say year, but it really changes over epochs. And so there are, the top show in the world is the Kokobu exhibit in Japan held every year in the Metropolitan Art Museum in Ueno Park in Tokyo. And I've been a, a number of times to that show, but they produce a beautiful book of the exhibit. And if you flip through the book over the last 50 years, and I've got about 50 years worth of the books, you can see trends come and go, which I find absolutely fascinating. What kinds of things that people are doing, what patterns can we recognize that people are subscribing to? That, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, for me, from my, just my limited perspective, right, year, years ago, I was interested in bonsai, but, and I, I thought it of more just kind of trying to clip and maintain as the manipulation and um, late, later spending more time with uh, a friend of mine who has a lot of trees in his, in his backyard. Uh, that's when I, my mind was kind of really open when I first started seeing kind of wiring and that type of long form manipulation of, of, you know, branch styling. Uh, so that's just another thing. It has, has the wiring and that manipulation, has that always been a part of bonsai technique or is that uh, kind of more recent? And again, the time scale is so different, right? <laughs> when we're talking about bonsai, cause there's no immediate kind of elements and it. it does take time for the trees to grow, but uh, is, is wiring something new? And I'm probably butchering the term too, and I apologize. That's the precise term. We call it wiring as well. Okay. And for those who don't know, um, our basic techniques for developing bonsai is we provide the kind of setting for a tree to grow in, uh, the light, the water, the fertilizer, and then the tree does all the growing. We can't make the trees grow. The techniques that we have are a reductive technique, which is pruning, and we have a redirection technique, which is wiring. And so what we do is we can coil a wire around a branch to move it to a different position. And that can make a big difference on the overall look or aesthetic uh, feel of the tree. The current tools and techniques we use have been used for about 100 years. So in the big picture, if we think the first written evidence of bonsai dating back between one and 2,000 years ago in China, that's very recent. But it's been about 100 years since it was around this time in Japan 100 years ago that people were using similar tools and similar techniques. Thank you. A question that I, so we're, we're based in the Midwest and, uh, you know, so for better or worse, plagued with seasonality, right? And some deep spikes with, uh, and you're, you're in, in the Bay Area. Are you, can you keep your trees out year round? Yes. Uh, okay. All right. And not only can I keep them out year round, but I can pretty much work on them every day of the year. I, it's embarrassing to admit any of this in front of anyone in the Midwest, but it is rare that we have to worry about freezes where I live. Yeah. Yeah. And I know. They are, they're so mild. I don't need to protect the trees for the most part. And we get a hailstorm every decade and I'll frantically run my trees <laughs> under shelter Okay. And uh, and you all would just laugh and say, pat us on the head and say, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Look, they found a pebble-sized hailstone. Right. Yeah, I know. And some trouble we had actually just on my, my little garden in the backyard where I'm just growing hot peppers and tomatoes. Uh, in mid-May, there we had a uh, surprise freeze that actually killed everything that I'd put in the garden. Uh, so I had, to, I had to restart in late, late May. Uh, 
And a friend of mine who I mentioned has, you know, he has a bunch of trees. He has to, he, he keeps his car parked outside of his garage in winter because he has shelving and brings all his trees in. And then he has, he monitors, you know, kind of moisture levels in the soil and is trying to, and monitors the temperatures to, to keep them alive during the, uh, the season. But when, when we had that May free, he put all his trees out, but then had to quickly run them all back in the garage for the weekend. <laughs> And yeah, that's what people often call the dance. And yeah. it, it may make you roll your eyes when you think, oh, these people are keeping their cars outside all winter and their trees are protected. That's the easy part. That's the low hassle part. The hard part is in spring when you need your trees to harden off because if the new foliage emerges when your tree's in a garage, it's not going to really uh, get itself prepared for handling the full brunt of the sun. And yeah. so people take their trees out during the day and they'll often bring them back at night or when there's a storm. And when you get those late, late freezes, everyone thinks they're over it. And there's just some people are just taking dozens of trees in and out on a daily basis. Right. That that's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit too about your your approach and your craft because from my perspective, you're wearing, you know, kind of multiple hats. You you produce content for a blog and you've been doing that for quite some time. Uh, you have a, a new book, but then also as an educator and, and practitioner, how do you put yourself in the mindset kind of on the education side, uh, either in person for a workshop or preparing a book? If you don't mind walking me through that process. Yeah, definitely. When I think back maybe 20 years ago, my goal in bonsai has been, I would love to, for more people to appreciate beautiful trees. And so I've spent 20 plus years thinking about how does one do that? Is it by making more beautiful trees? Is it by teaching people how to do anything with their trees just so more people growing trees, assuming that some of them will then want to do more and more? Because I love seeing beautiful trees. I find them fascinating. And I'm always thinking, what are the different ways we can get at that? And so everything you just mentioned, whether it's the book, the website, the writing the articles, the teaching the in-person classes, the traveling and lecturing, all of that are different instances of my attempts at trying to stimulate that interest, um, which is a little more specific than just broader interest in bonsai, which is, oh, these are great. They're potted trees. It's something we can care for. I want more people to really understand what makes great trees tick and how then to take care of them or even create them on their own. It, is is there a common theme and a breakthrough when you're talking, like you said, when you, you want people to kind of know what makes a tree tick, is, is there um, like a common technique that you use to help people kind of get that insight? I'd say the broad technique is I when I teach classes, even when I give lectures, I try to have the audience do most of the talking. And that's not common in a lot of different practices, as you may have yeah. noticed. And when you get people to think things through, one neat thing about bonsai is it's like a great model, not organism, but model kind of practicum from which so much can be gleaned. And people know a lot more than they think they do and often lack the confidence or lack a few specific details. And so what I try to do is get people to look at trees closely and to guess and just try things. And it turns out more often than not that they actually have the ability to see it. I was, one tiny example, I was in Japan in February this year and I, a lot of foreigners will just bump into each other and start chatting, you know, other Americans, Australians, Europeans. And I bumped into a guy from somewhere in the South and it was near the end of the day, so we had the whole room to ourselves. these world-class trees, some of them worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I was spending a lot of time on one of my favorite trees. And this other guy took an interest in the tree. And I said, oh, did you notice the way the trunk moved on this? And that's going to sound really funny not seeing it. But when you looked at the tree from five feet away, you just saw a trunk coming up out of the pot and then a bunch of green on top. But when you looked inside, the trunk actually went up and then it dove straight to the back, spun around a couple times, went to the tip top, came down, and then the branches started emerging from there. And unless you literally kind of looked up underneath this tree and looked around all sides to really carefully examine it, you wouldn't have noticed any of that. And so I think 
he became a little bit more interested after seeing that. And it just made me think there might be something like that in every other tree in this whole room of 250 trees. Yeah, I, I, I love that because for me, there are so many elements from uh, a design perspective that I find helpful and interesting in, in, in the craft of bonsai. And, and even what you just explained, like for me, one of the big things when I'm working with um, designers on my team, you know, like I'm trying to, trying to educate them on how to be better designers. And, and uh, you know, some of the things we try to do is get designers to ask better questions, more interesting questions. And another thing that I talk a lot about is parallax and like taking different perspectives to be able to look at things uh, to try to get a holistic picture. And sometimes we'll say zoom in, zoom out, but I do. So I love what you said, yeah, like from a distance, here's what it looks like get close, here's what it looks like, but then also moving around 360 degrees to, to appreciate and get a fuller picture of what's going on is, I think maybe those are some of the things that I'm, I'm finding so fascinating about. Bonsai is almost a, uh, a mechanism to, to teach better design skills and practices. And, I, and so it's kind of meta, right? Because there is design in bonsai, but using it itself to teach designers about craft and uh, also, I think because in my perspective, there, there's there's a little by way of immediate gratification as well. You have to you have to hone it over time and see what happens. But I really appreciate that story on perspective. Well, it's One funny of- that you say perspective and parallax because literally it was just yesterday I was working with a couple friends and I was turning a tree around really quickly. It was on a turntable and I was just doing the last bit of pruning refinement. And I find that by moving my head physically up and down, moving my chair up and down and spinning the tree a little more quickly than you would expect in kind of a funny jerky motion, it creates that parallax, which in the pure design community is a brilliant metaphor, but I was actually doing it in this tangible situation. And I was pointing out that one thing I've noticed more and more over time is that the way experienced people touch trees or look at trees is very different than the way beginners do. And I'm trying to give myself as many perspectives as possible, move it around a little more. It's a little more kinetic or dynamic. Yeah. And I'm looking for that perspective because you just can't see everything from any one given spot, just like on your design teams. Right. Yeah. And you, and then you also had mentioned uh, both from a kind of a design and almost education perspective is uh getting more input from, from the student or the learner uh, rather than kind of lecturing. And, you know, I, I used to do a lot of work in the uh, online education space. So as you design courses and, and as we dig into pedagogy stuff, right, but the kind of the Socratic method is actually to, to put more questions out there to help, help the learner come to, to that le- rather than just give them the answer. And, so, and then also from a design perspective, it being human centered is actually asking the people around what do they need? What are their goals rather than just telling them? So I also really appreciate hearing that from kind of your, your education style. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned asking the people what they need. Uh, Probably the very best bonsai tip I ever received was from a really good friend of mine, a Japanese professional. And we were talking about watering and he said, well, you need to have a conversation with the tree. And he said, tree, are you thirsty? And then he apes the tree. Yes, please give me water. Tree, you know, do you need some nutrition? Yes, please give me fertilizer. And what you need to be is essentially a good listener to hear or understand what is it that this living organism needs from us and then provide that. And so there's this funny back and forth with the trees. It's of the many levels of collaboration in bonsai, that's the most core relationship is between the person caring for the tree and then the tree's uh, growth response. Thank you. A question I have too, you had, you had mentioned uh, that, and I, I think this might be surprising for, for people kind of outside of, of the bonsai ecosystem is uh, the value or price on some of the trees. Right. It can, it could be more than a car or more than a house, right? There are some very expensive trees out there. Can you tell me what drives the cost? Um, kind of what, what are the elements in kind of in that, that marketplace that are at play that drive, uh, the value of a tree? Yeah. The value of the tree. Part of it is going to be supply and demand. If a lot of people have an interest in a certain size or style or species of tree, it's going to become more popular. 
And then we're going to look at things like how readily available are these trees? Are the trees grown, field grown in a nursery? Or were they collected from the mountains? And so we have no, we have very exhaustible supplies of both. In other words, we just don't have the material we want. And currently bonsais seen a gain in popularity in the U.S. that I have not seen in the last, you know, two and a half decades of doing this. It's been really incredible. And so that does have an effect on prices. People pay more for less, and that's kind of what it takes if you want to get started sometime. Now, I say more for less. That might be $15 for a $10 tree, and it doesn't need to be a lot of money. Do you have do you have tips for for folks like me, kind of new uh, and kind of entering the practice or craft on uh, good ways to start? Yeah, and a couple of things come to mind. I'm doing a presentation for a club next week, and they'd asked for ten things you wish you knew when you were getting started. And I thought, oh, that'd be a great way. They thought, oh, that'd be a great way to present some basic core ideas of what you've learned and how to care for trees. And I thought the same. And then I made the list. None of them have to do with technique. Interesting. It was things like, I wish I'd bought every good tree I ever had a chance to buy because it's not going to come around again. I, and so I would have taken, it would have been a stretch in some cases, but yeah. I would have had those trees. Right. I wish I had the confidence at the time to experiment more and try more along the way. And like I mentioned earlier, when you grow a lot of something, I wish I had really internalized the message of growing things in batches. So when I think of a beginner like you or anyone else who has a handful of seedlings or cuttings or young trees, the pressure is incredible to get it right. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you, am I, it, it's funny because it's alive. We don't want to mess it up. We don't want to make a mistake. We are terrified because we don't yet know what it's going to take to keep that alive. And so that really is all just one category of things I'd want to convey to people is when you're ready, get a couple more things and you may not be attached to all of them and that's fine. The other thing is if you start with a couple seedlings or cuttings, you won't be doing actual bonsai techniques, meaning there's less to wire, there's less to prune, you're not selecting pots that are going to complement the style of the tree because it's got to grow for another 10 years. Right, right. Whereas if you own a tree at a couple stages of development, maybe you get an older tree, then that'll let you practice the techniques you'll need to know for the ones that you're starting from scratch. And that's actually a hard transition for people. And I'm curious, have you thought about that? You know, what does that look like from your perspective who has young trees, but maybe not any of the older trees? Well, you, you hit it. It's, uh, you know, it was, so I received some uh, seeds uh, for my birthday in the spring from my family. Uh, and uh, that, so love my family, love the, but it, for me, it, it's panic and, and kind of anxiety inducing. Right? It's, one is, will these even sprout? And then they do. And, and to what you said, like these fears of even keeping it alive, um, because they, they seem so so small and right fragile right now, and and that's part of it is just knowing that it's going to be years before I can really even do anything to them. And so, what's interesting though is I then I've thought like, well, where might I go to go grab some older trees actually to start to start to practice? Like you said that that where maybe wiring or you know at least some pruning might be in play. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's, there's no pruning that I can do to these right now. Cause I think, I, I think anything I do to them might <laughs> be might detrimental. Yes. <laughs> and so the best starting points are picking up trees at a local garden center or, uh, and then when you get a little more interested, digging up trees out of your neighbor's gardens, that's actually yeah. a really, <laughs> uh, really common source of uh, bonsai material, but garden centers, picking up uh, species that speak to you in some way. I will not say that all trees have equal good characteristics to become bonsai, but that's something you can learn over time. And I'd say when people follow their interest, whether that means deciduous or coniferous or broadleaf evergreen, you're more likely to want to pay attention. You're more likely to learn a little more about the tree. Whereas if someone says, oh, start with a juniper, they're great for starting. They yeah. are. They're maybe the best for starting. But if you don't care about junipers, it's not going to help. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting where where we live. Uh, we actually have a, a creek uh, that goes 
it's it's kind of our property divider uh and so we we do have trees all over the place and periodically i've thought about just like scoping for like small small trees that have been growing along the creek bed to to actually pull one from nature but uh yeah going to the garden store too is and for me uh maples especially when i see uh like red japanese maples for me i you know, I can't explain it, but those are the ones that I find really beautiful. But I do find, like you said, with junipers, just as I've been digging in, the kind of the, the shape of those are so, you know, interesting that those that's the part of the junipers that really appeal to me. But then when it comes, maybe it's just being in the Midwest and I, I just love fall. So maybe that's why the red red leaves are are something that resonate with me. But I might have to get out to the get out to the garden store soon. And so you just touched on what's going to be one of the biggest things I would suggest for beginners and experts is grow things that do well where you live. You do not have the same flexibility I do. And there actually are a couple species that you can grow that I can't because a lot of trees have more uh, winter dormancy requirements. And so there are some really common species like uh, white pines, for instance, that they, they want winter. They want to go to sleep for a while. And I can't offer that where I live. Thanks. Uh, one, one of the questions I have for you too is uh, just kind of related to, and, and I ask this of all craftspeople, and uh, one is, do you ever feel stuck? Uh, and if so, like, how, how, do you, how do you get unstuck? That's a great question, and I have heard other professionals talk about that. One interesting thing about bonsai is, <clears throat> in a lot of cases, there's no blank canvas there's a tree in front of you that needs attention. And based on the time of year, it's gonna need a certain kind of attention. And some trees may benefit from occasional neglect. And so I think stuck in bonsai might be more of the overall malaise that makes us less likely to wanna go into the garden. Or when stressors mount, you may not want to apply a pesticide or check every single pot for when you're watering and you start to really be slightly less engaged in terms of the art that one's interesting because like i said we're all starting with a concrete starting point this tree this framework and so what we're bringing to that tree being stuck would be what do i put the branch here do i put that branch there do i cut this branch or do i cut that branch and it's it's more a matter of not feeling as positive about the direction not instantly seeing where you want to go with the tree and trying to figure that out. And I think the unstuck is, and this I teach all the time, is I try to break the problem down into the smallest piece possible. And I say this with beginners all the time, and you would laugh. People will say, I'll say, great, do you know how to thin this tree? The tree's really full, let's thin it out so the interior branches don't die. And they'll often say, no, I don't know where to begin. And I'll look at the tree and I I can't see anything. I just see a green ball. And I'll say, you're right, I can't see it either, so let me try to make a smaller puzzle out of this. And I'll grab one branch, and I'll say, well, do we know how to thin this one branch? And it'll be a a single green ball on this larger green ball. (laughs) And they'll often say, no. And I say, you're right, I don't see it either. And then I'll take one corner of one branch, little side branchlet, and then we'll look at it upside down and inside out and figure out, oh, we can see what's going on here can we solve this problem? And so when you break it down a little bit, it'll give you something to do and hopefully get into that headspace you need to be in when you, when the time comes to make those more universal decisions about the overall look of the tree. That's great. It's in what I'm fascinated there is also one of the things in design uh, that I try to teach designers is breaking things down to their smallest unit. And that's part of that perspective as well. But, uh, Sometimes when we're doing analysis of a problem, making things as modular as what what are these small pieces? And if we lay those out right before we do any synthesis, can we just get all what are all these parts that are going on? What are the small things that we might be able to work on? And then what will that do? But yeah, it also help like you said, it it helps with the, the idea. Like I think some sometimes we get overwhelmed by things or things seem complex. So if take a breath, look at it. And, and what, what are some of the small things where we could start to start to make this into like kind of manageable chunks, right? Yeah. In many ways, teaching bonsai and teaching design is teaching people how to ask better questions. 
Yes. And that's really hard. Uh, one of the more common tropes in bonsai is if you ask someone, oh, what do I do with blah, blah? And they'll say, oh, it depends. And so a lot of people make fun of bonsai teachers because the answer to every question is it depends. And my response is always, ask a better question. How do I prune this branch on this tree in my environment at this stage of health, at this stage of development with this design goal in mind? Right. Then we can start having a conversation where we get to what we might actually do with that branch. And that's the question that people are asking but may not know they're asking all the time. And so I'd be curious to hear how you do this in the design world because it's really the same thing. Is how do you trigger that curiosity? How do you expose people to the breadth of the discipline to where they understand that they need to ask better questions? Well, that that's great. I mean, one of, one of the things is trying to get get folks to understand that the the quality of the answer resides in the question, right? Yeah. It's the quality of the question that's going to dictate the quality of that. And I was laughing when you were you were talking about that because. Uh, also on the consulting side, it depends is like also that seems like a cliche from consultants, but what's right. sitting under that is context matters. And like, so, well, let's start to dig into the context. What are, what are your goals? What, what are your customers trying to achieve in what context? Now let's reframe that in a question that we might be able to answer or kind of embrace appreciative inquiry. How can we, you know, how might we frame this so, so that, you know, those, those are kind of like some, some word triggers that we use is how might we and so that. But we're trying to understand perhaps what is the customer goal? Uh, what are they trying to achieve? What friction points might there be in their life? And then also what is it that we can actually design and then looking at it systematically, because if we do change this element, what are we changing upstream or downstream in this? And some of those are hard, too, because I think most of our life we're rewarded for being uh, problem solvers, for having a solution. And, and what I see in design where people get in trouble with complex problems is they lead with the solution uh, rather than do we truly understand the problem. And it's it's a little bit of a, maybe a cliche in design, but I try to encourage people to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Yeah. Because when you fall in love with the problem, you're always trying to look at it from different angles. You're trying to, and it's not nearly as ego driven as leading with the solution or falling in love with the solution. Because once you do that, you're trying to prove to everybody that you were right rather than, you know, doing what's right for, for whatever, whatever problem or projects at hand. I, I don't know if that made sense. I was rambling a bit there. It makes so much sense. I have long thought that, I feel there's all these secret powers people can have and they're so obvious, but they are so distasteful. Right. I think some of the most powerful words in the English language are, I don't know. Because if something comes up and it's a hard problem, and if you start with, I don't know, let's look into that. It just instantly diffuses everything and someone might be initially upset and want an answer. But it's like you say, when you fall in love with that problem, when you start being able to think through, well, what are we actually getting at? And why are we getting at that? And what do we need? Where do we need to be to get to a better uh, solution for that problem? That's where it all gets interesting. And if you start out with the knowledge, you're precluding any chance for interaction. You're ignoring whether or not the person you're working with cares or gets it. And it may or may not be a good answer. But to me, it's almost more interesting to go through that process than it is to just, well, duh, cut that one. That's, right. that's, that's so less interesting to me. Yeah, it's funny that that you said that because that I was um, recently I was talking with uh, a design expert, and one of the things we were talking about is is maybe one of the most kind of confident or or bold things you can say now is I don't know, <laughs> right? Because you yeah. one is you you're being vulnerable, right? Is I don't know. But as I've, I've always tried to encourage my design teams that, that the next thing I want to hear <laughs> after I don't know is but let's find out or, and here's how we might find out or here's how we might explore, right? So, but yeah, that not knowing and then the, just the asking better questions. My, my, my friend Noah, who's the, you know, the, uh, the big bonsai fan, uh, his, his day job is that he's a immunology and microbiology researcher. So he runs a lab at the University of Iowa. And when he and I talk about uh, training designers or training postdocs and PhD candidates, one of the things that it keeps coming back to is how do we help students ask better questions yeah. and try to spark more of the curiosity rather than giving them the, the solution. But in a hurried world, sometimes that seems really frustrating for folks when we might respond to a question with a question. 
Yeah, and it can be very trying, and you have to not be cheeky about it. Uh, for right. me to say I don't know, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you really don't know," with all those yeah. years of experience and having done that a million times, and so it does have to be done carefully. But it's uh, when I think of some other things in my background that have just made this such a perfect fit for me. I went to graduate school to learn how to teach composition, to teach writing, and what is that if not trying to figure out how to get people to think? taking an, a discrete object and a discrete product of their thinking, their writing, and then working with that to add depth, to add interest, to make it more compelling, let alone correct, which would be the equivalent right. of health. And so yeah. I was learning all of these pedagogical techniques as well as literally interacting with people on this precise topic. So then you add a little bit of art to that. And I have enjoyed visual arts my whole life. I'm the guy at the museum who will, get my face right up two <laughs> centimeters away from a painting and then I'll back away and yeah. squint my eyes at the end of the room and I'll have a ton of interaction with the artworks. And so it's just more and more when I get in discussions like this, I keep thinking, boy, did I luckily find this interesting way to synthesize so many of these topics that I find so interesting. Yeah, that that's great with, you know, from, from a, a limited outside perspective, but you know, thinking about writing and composition, to uh, just thinking about the parallels to to pruning and you know, getting getting to the essence of of a message, right? Where it's that that too is a is a is a craft. So I could see uh, some strong parallels between composition and, and bonsai. Now that you mention it, which gets back to the question you'd asked a few minutes ago about aesthetics and are there yeah. trends in things? And one of the one of the big topics that's bandied about these days is what should our aesthetic goals be and where should our aesthetic models come from? Are we reproducing what Japan does? Are we reproducing what we see in nature? Or are there some other things we are doing trying to tell a personal story with our work? And there are these, I find... Oh, wow, I don't want to dismiss it entirely, but that probably gives it away. Right. Discussions about whether bonsai is more of an art or a craft. There are elements yeah. of both. And every time you decide if I'm going to put a branch here or there, it's an aesthetic decision or the decision has aesthetic consequences. And so it's not devoid of art. And so I want to start discussions about what are the patterns of artistic decisions we are making that someone as an outsider can recognize and say, oh, that group there is making those kinds of artistic decisions. We can see that by this pattern. This other group does it a different way. Can we then deduce that there are patterns in this region of Japan, in this region of the world, in among the students of this teacher in North America? And that is, I think a lot of people are thinking about that now, and I love it because it's the first time I've even heard this topic engaged so well. That no, that's really interesting. And you had mentioned ballet earlier, and so I guess thinking about aesthetics and message, you know, I I remember this was a long time ago, but I believe it was the Rites of Spring when that was first delivered. Uh, that there were stories of fistfights breaking out among audience members because it was so new and different, and some thought it was an absolute beautiful extension of of the art, right? And others were it was. It was almost like when, when Dylan plugged in at the folk festival, right? It was like then for others, it was violating the, the basic principles. And so they couldn't, could, couldn't handle it, right? And either, both sides were like so energetic about it. Are, are there topics in the bonsai world that generates near fistfights? Uh, yes, but there's so much less interesting. And so <laughs> The Rite of Spring is one of my yeah. favorite pieces of music. Yeah. I'm right there with you. I'm a huge <laughs> classical music nerd. And it was super challenging. It had, yeah, yeah horrible. Uh, pe people did not take to it really well. And to this day, it remains a challenging piece. I've been to other dance performances where people were getting up and leaving Merce Cunningham shows or sitting around me because it was so loud and so intense. And I'm literally on the edge of my seat with an ear-to-ear -ear grin, huge yeah. teeth showing, and I was just wrapped for the next two hours straight. In the bonsai world, the big fights are over technical details far more than they are over aesthetic details. And I think it actually takes quite a lot of exposure to where people have a good enough library of understanding of who, how many people 
familiar enough with Japanese work to recognize the work of one professional versus another professional? How many people are familiar with what the decisions are we have to make, what may or may not be informed by how those trees grow in nature? Um, a really common example, do, how do we style a deciduous tree? And by style, I mean, how do we design the branches? One way to think of it is, do the branches primarily grow up or do they primarily grow down? And when the branches grow down, people will say, oh, you styled that elm like a pine. And what's funny is every other person who's fairly serious at bonsai will get that reference. But a tiny, tiny fraction of people will know that pine bonsai don't look like pines in nature. <laughs> and that pine bonsai looks like the shape of bonsai, not the shape of how pines grow in nature. And so it really takes a lot before we can have an artistic um, fight over something. It's, we're much more likely to see a fight. I think my soil is better than yours <laughs> because I said so. Yeah. And my trees are alive, so ergo best. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, wanted to, you know, we, one of the questions I ask uh, of guests quite often, and, and you touched upon it a little bit earlier, but I kind of uh, steal from Austin Cleon's book, Steal Like an Artist, an advice that you would give to your younger self. And I know you were preparing that, that, top, that top 10 list. One of the things that I wanted to just follow up is, uh, you know, because when we give advice, we're talking to our younger self is what Cleon says. But uh, is there in that, sorry, this is so ham-fisted, but I was just really curious that many of the things you said, they weren't technique related. And so. No, they weren't. They weren't technique related at all. And I was, the, the longer I thought about it, what really cracked me up is I was having trouble finding things I would want to change because there was something wonderful, at least in terms of bonsai. Life be a laundry list of what to change. But right. for bonsai, there yeah. really are so many wonderful things to learn. It was things like don't overwork your trees. A lot of people with small collections, oh, I'm excited. I'm going to take my tree to this teacher. You cut three branches, you wire it. Next month, I'm bored. Oh, another teacher's coming to town. I'm going to take my tree again. Well, they chose a new direction. They cut a few more branches. They moved everything around again. Overworking trees can really stress them out, and I see that a lot. Thank you. Uh, so is there, are there any topics we didn't cover today that you, you thought we might touch upon? You know, one thing we had talked about when getting ready for the call was a little about collaboration, since yeah. I know that's the theme of the podcast. And yep. I think of it as there are kind of three core forms of collaboration at minimum in bonsai. The one we talked about, there's a relationship between a person and the tree they're working on. It's a, it, there's a lot of give and take there. It's a funny right. kind of dance. Um, another kind of collaboration we also just touched on, which is the collaboration between a student and a teacher, where if I am a student and I interact with a teacher, the teacher will suggest making some artistic decisions on the tree, and that's going to inform how that tree looks from there on out. But then there's the ultimate form of collaboration, which is I expect all of my trees to live longer than me. So at some point, ideally, I won't be taking care of my trees. And many of the best trees around the world have been cared for over the generations by different people. And they may be hundreds of years old when they are first taken from the mountains and enter someone's collection. So nature has had its say and has given the tree indelible marks of its character. And then the first artist may work on the tree for one year or 12 or 50 years, and then someone else gets it. And it's as more people work on the trees, they take on more and more interesting character. And, and so there's a million places you might want to go with that, yeah. but I love how rich the concept of collaboration is in bonsai. It's baked in a way that is just so different in other visual arts. Yeah, that, thank you so much, right? Because yeah, collaboration is such an important theme kind of on the podcast, so I, I appreciate bringing that, that back. And then what's making me smile is just that last part about timescales. And I think there are so many design elements and so many things in the design world that go to digital, go to like people developing apps and it's like immediate feedback, immediate reaction, go to market quickly versus like some crafts. I was just talking to somebody a while ago about the, like the great cathedrals in Europe. Like, you know, there, there are generations of people that might've worked on that and never didn't see the beginning and never saw the end. And 
there's there's just I don't know. I think there's something beautiful about creating something that that might spark joy for somebody that you'll never see, right? And just I don't know what that what that is, like you know, but just something about humanity, about trying trying to also create something beautiful for for somebody without an immediate response. I think it, it's an act of generosity. Yeah, there's something to that, and we do get glimmers of it on our own time frame, which is. I've often said, I've started a lot of trees from seed, probably hundreds, if not thousands over the years. And I really like starting trees and then seeing what someone else does with it. Because I know what the trees I make look like, give or take. Whereas when I see what someone else does with my starting points, I find it so much more interesting. Even if I don't like it, I love seeing the directions they're going. And it may be a result of neglect. It may be a result of overwork, but it's going to give that tree character that I wouldn't have been able to give it. And there's something really neat about that. Thank you. Uh, one thing too, is we're, we're kind of coming up on, on time. I, I should have mentioned earlier too, right? But you, you do have a strong connection to Iowa. Uh, you have a brother yes. that lives in Iowa uh, who I, I'm, I'm friends with. And I just find it fascinating that because I, I know Amos, as, as, you know, as his adult self, but I, I just find it fascinating that people grew up in a house with, <laughs> with Amos. So I just wanted to get, <laughs> get that out. I, I love him dearly. I love him dearly. And he is, he's such an interesting character, but uh, can't imagine growing up with him. Uh, as you would imagine, I, I cannot imagine a more entertaining person. So yeah. <laughs> it's a, it, and it, it truly was entertaining and awesome. <laughs> That's great. So uh, do you have any plans to get out to Iowa to, to visit? Yes. I don't know when that'll be at this point. Uh, right. My last, the last several years have been a lot of work. A lot of people yeah. you may hear refer to bonsai as a lifestyle. It sounds ridiculous and it's extremely true because when you have all of these trees that need water multiple times a day, it has a big effect on your life. And you don't think about weekdays, weekends, evenings, mornings. You just think if you're able, you're going to be working on the trees pretty much. And so the last couple of times I was in Iowa, it was actually driving trees to the U S national exhibit in New York. And so I got, I got the short straw a couple of times and ended up driving the truck to New York. And so I was able to stop by uh, and visit Iowa on those occasions and, I am dying to interact with one of the bonsai groups in Iowa next time I'm out there. So I've been in touch with a couple people and a couple clubs and just need to get the timing right so that I can uh, join in and see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I know of one, one person that would be interested in uh, like from his club. If, if you haven't been in touch, I'll, I'll make sure to have Noah reach out. Uh, when you are, when you're doing some of the, you're going to those clubs so my mental model that I'm working with is like comedians or musicians on tour. Do you try to like, like I'm going to be here. Okay. You know, like for you coming from California, like maybe is there, there's something where, you know, you're going to do something in, in Chicago. Uh, do you try to book something in Colorado on the way or uh, how does that wor- work? Because you have to be, pr- like you said, protective of, of your time because of, of the care for your, your own tree collection. And different kind of professionals navigate that very differently. Some people are on the road over 50% of the time and they live out of hotels. And the normal drill is they're going to do a presentation for an event. It may be a convention. It may be a club meeting. And then there will be ancillary events. So there may be a speaking engagement or demonstration. And then they'll be doing client work and or workshops on top of that. And so a lot of people will string together multiple venues and go from city to city, region to region, or as other people, if you're doing it by plane, it's more destination oriented. And so I'm really lucky. I do a lot less travel than some other professionals. Some of them are just live out of suitcases. Whereas I've been trying to spend more time in my garden the last number of years. Um, I had planned to get out more this year to promote the book and and even that didn't work out. And so I'm doing most of my presentations now virtually around the country, which has been great. I can use these online tools to present to clubs all over the country. I think I'll be in Sacramento, North Carolina, and I forget the other one in the next, in San Francisco in the next week. And so that'll be kind of fun. The only other idea I wanted to get back to is you had asked or you'd mentioned a couple different ways how or how easy it is for people to fall into feeling afraid for their trees or not knowing how to do that or lacking the confidence in how to get people there. And 
I found that every different way I've interacted with people, I've been able to learn a little bit more about that. So writing the blog has been fantastic. I've had a ton of feedback, both in person and through comments, about what people can take away from that. Lecture style presentations is another form of feedback, as are the um, the video calls I've been doing, where now people are showing me through their phones live footage of their gardens and just seeing yeah. the situation in which their trees are growing, hearing how they're interacting with their trees is teaching me even more. And so what I did is I synthesized all of this when I was writing the book, which you had mentioned. Right. And the overall goal of the book was I, I read every other bonsai book I could find for four or five years in preparation for doing this. But I wanted a book I could hand an absolute beginner. And the point of the book is how not to kill your trees. <laughs> and so yeah. more beginner books say, and this is a this style tree, or here's what you do for maples, and here's what you do for spruce. And I wanted to do a tree that says, here's how to find out where in your garden it'll be healthy. Here's how to know if you're watering it well or not. And it's the design to really come up with getting people over the basic hump of, how am I going to make sure this thing's healthy enough to where I can start having those artistic concerns about it? I, I love that also from a design perspective, right? What is, what's that, that kind of goal-based design and friction point is <laughs> for me to advance, I need my tree to live. <laughs> so working from that premise, like how do we get you comfortable with keeping your tree alive? Uh, so I, I love that. Yeah, the chief irony in all of this is that I've gone way out of my way to very consciously develop an approach to teaching with zero overlap of how I learned. <laughs> and so I kind of love that life's interesting enough that was the way I learned a complete failure was the way is the way I'm teaching a complete failure or are there just so many different people and so many different techniques that there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat in this case. Thank you. And talking about teachers, and you had mentioned also uh, Bonsai Boone uh, kind uh -huh. of at the beginning, but are there other messages uh, from early teachers that kind of resonate with you today? Or because uh, some, sometimes what I'm finding in the podcast is from some mentors or a piece of advice somebody received, they continue to unpack it as they work on their craft. That it, And so just wondering, are there, are there statements or insights that you would receive from a mentor that still resonate with you today? I'll say insights from a statement. And a lot of people think, oh, I'd really love to go to Japan and do an apprenticeship. I would love to just study bonsai for a few years. And that's a great assumption unless you know how apprenticeships work. And then you realize that in some cases, it just might mean carrying heavy things or doing routine maintenance work, or pushing a hose, or doing this really awful, awful work. But one person came up with this great phrase, which is that you have to steal your technique. And very few professionals in Japan teach their apprentices anything. It's on the apprentice to pay attention and learn what goes on. And when I said I'm still unpacking that to this day, I recently reviewed an online bonsai course. And my biggest takeaways were literally watching how the person held the tree, the way he touched it and interacted with it is, it kind of forces you to pay close attention. And the message may not be in do X, not Y, but I'm always trying to pay attention to what is happening on whether a meta level or just a tacit level, yeah. what, what are these details that we can pick up? Because those are the biggest differences I see based on someone's experience with bonsai. The way you would handle a tree, the way Noah might handle the tree, the way my teachers might handle a tree are going to be totally different. And it's those kinds of things that at least recently I've been paying a lot of attention to. And, and that's going to last forever. That, that's great. That's really interesting, too. Uh, a recent interview that I did for the podcast was with uh, another uh, research scientist, and she, she focuses on uh, uh, cystic fibrosis and bacteria and bacterial colonies and actually how sophisticated bacterial colonies are. <laughs> they have specialized labor, the way they communicate with each other, etc. cetera. Uh, but when I was talking to her about mentorship, she shared a very similar view to what you said. It was, it's, it's less about what mentors have uh, told her and it was more about what she observed on how they approached their work. And 
you know, kind of take, taking that in. And, and so that might be one thing that I'd encourage listeners to and digging into whatever your own craft is that master craftsperson observe how they work, not just like looking for an answer or, 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 you know, listening for an answer, but observe how they approach their work yeah. and then ask why, right? Those are sometimes like, you know, I, Hey, I noticed you did this. And sometimes you find it might just there, it has nothing to do with anything other than just being super practical. right? <laughs> That's right. And that could be a really important lesson because there's nothing practical about growing a tree because we think it's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It's a truly frivolous, frivolous pursuit. Well, Jonas, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor to, to have you here. And uh, may, maybe you could be a guest in the future. I'll, I'll, I'll try my hand at bonsai a little bit more. And also, again, if you're, if you're coming through uh, or visiting Amos, please, please let me know because it would be a, a, a delight to, to hang out. We'll do. And if we do it again, we'll have to make sure Noah's invited. So make yes. sure that he's included. Yes, I he would have a ton of questions for you. Uh, I would love it. All right. And uh, the one takeaway I'll give to people is to try to keep in mind, uh, the trees want to live. We're just helping. <laughs> yes, that's great. Uh, thanks so much and have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks so much. Have a great day.